HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Two percent, two percent, two percent. Uh, the two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah, anything to support local food, know what I mean? I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously. Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, gotta get the plug in there. I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Today's program was brought to you by Domain. Domain offers discreet and secure storage, transportation, trading, and advisory services to passionate fine wine collectors worldwide. For more information, visit domainstorage.com. I'm Michael Ameko from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and I love hosting this show, but when I'm not hosting In the Drink, you can find me this summer really at Altalinea, an outdoor restaurant in Chelsea on 10th Avenue between 20th and 21st Street, where you can enjoy a frozen Negroni or some great Italian wine and a small grower champagne. It's a beautiful outdoor restaurant. I would love to, to see you there. Um, I'm excited about today's guest. We have Mr. Lyle Fass in the studio with us. He's probably where I buy a majority of the wine for from my house. He's someone I've known for over a decade. One of the most exciting, interesting uh, people in the wine industry. And someone who showed a lot of kindness to me when I was very young and there was no reason to do so. But before uh, we get started, I do want to let you guys know that In the Drink is produced by Heritage Radio Network, which is a non-profit, member-supported radio station that is devoted to all things food and for In the Drink also do- 
dedicated to all things drink. Uh, please help keep HRN alive by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Do it now. That would be very, very good of you, and we'd all appreciate it very much. Uh, In the Drink comes to you at 11 a.m. live every Wednesday, um, and you can always find our back episodes on Stitcher, iTunes, HeritageRadioNetwork.org, the website. Uh, Hope that you can reference and we'll look at some of our past episodes as well as the ones that are coming up in the future. As I said, I'm excited to have Lyle Fast from Fast Selections here in the studio. Uh, Lyle, welcome to In the Drink. It for me, it's really excited, exciting to have you here. I uh, I, I I see you in my inbox uh, a couple times a week, and I read every single word, even though I. Choose, I, I tell myself, I'm not going to read this one because if I do, the likelihood of me buying wine is going to be increased significantly and I don't have the, the room for any more wine. I have, I have a full Eurocov and wine on top of it and in a box next to it. Oh, well, it's <laughs> great to be here and I appreciate all the support and you know, it's really good to be doing this show with an old friend. I mean, it's amazing how far we've gone back and how our journeys have taken us, you know, and uh, here we are. And uh, I'm really looking forward to kind of explaining where I come from, what I do, and what the future holds. Yeah, it is a unique thing that you do. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you don't, there aren't a lot of people who are doing, or at least not a lot of people who are doing it well enough to be worth talking about and having a whole interview with. Um, but let's talk about how we, how we first met, because uh, it's something that has really, um, it really just sticks with me, the kind of kindness that you showed me. I was uh I was at NYU, and uh, I was taking a food studies class at NYU. NYU had a, or still does have a, a food studies program, and they allowed me to actually to write a paper about wine retail stores. <laughs> I don't know uh, Amazing. why I, well, that was something that was interesting to me, and I had a, um, a really, uh, I had a thesis, and that was that people are starting to buy wine in more wine boutiques as opposed to liquor stores. It was a really, that was like my only point that I they made in the whole paper, but I, I went to a bunch of stores around town and Crush at the time was, but I think the most exciting, the fastest growing. The, they were new, yeah. They are new, but it was awesome. And you must have been the busiest, one of the busiest men in wine retailing at that time. And you, you gave me an hour or more of your time and said, if you, Kate, if you have more questions, I mean, you're, well, you couldn't have been that much older than me, not that much older than me. Mm-hmm. Like, contact me. Eh. Well, the reason is, is just because, you know, they're definitely, you, first of all, you've definitely got to pass it down and all of that and, and uh, like that. And honestly, it was also, it was a nice respite just from the madness of like the first couple of years of Crush. That was good just to kind of sit back and just kind of talk about things and teach things and all that. And I could see you were really earnest and that really resonates a lot with me. That's something I look for in, you know, people in general and especially, you know, my growers. And that's, that's very, very important to me. And just, I don't know, I love talking about wine and helping people, you know, uh, and helping people drink wine and helping shape their, not shape their, but maybe helping nudge them towards interesting viewpoints on wine that they may not have thought about. Yeah, and uh, so you were the wine buyer, the head wine buyer. Is that yeah, accurate? Yeah, well, with Crush, Crush, I wrote the work? business plan a uh, long, long time ago in a different lifetime. Daniel Jonas uh, called me up, and he's like, there's a new wine store opening. I think you'd be perfect for it. And then kind of I wrote the business plan for it, and uh, 
opened it up with Drew Neprant and Bob Shagrin. Uh, and there was another partner, Josh Guberman. I bought all the wine. I was the co-wine buyer in the beginning with John Osborne. He was just brought in to kind of set things up as a veteran presence. And then he left after three months. And then I was the sole wine buyer until I left, which was definitely a big job, I have to say. I mean, putting, you know, he had that whole wall with all the wines there, which were kind of generally under 50, and then you had the Cube, which was a combination of Bob Shagrin's private cellar when we opened uh, and other high-end purchases, and the Cube was where all the high-end wines. So buying wine there was a big task. It was a new way to present wine as well. Mm -hmm. You didn't really see too many retail stores that had that kind of wall, and it was just absolutely beautiful. It, it gave you a unique experience. How many years were you were you there? I was there for three years, and then I moved back to what I like to call my New York City second home, Chamber Street Wines. Uh, I will always love that store, for, and I love David and Jamie. They have shaped me, and you know I've definitely gone off in my little direction since I've left there, uh, but I live close to them. I visit them all the time. Uh, I just, you know, Eben Lilly is a good friend, David's mm-hmm. son, and just they're kind of like my family, you know, over there. I mean, their faces change, but the whole vibe and everything stays the same, you know. And uh, then after Chambers... Uh, the crisis, the financial crisis hit me for a little while. I was out of a job for nine months, I'll be honest. And then I started writing emails for a place called downtown called The Green Grape. And that didn't really work out. Uh, three, four weeks, it was just complicated. And then I started writing emails for Grapes, the wine company. And then after that, I opened my own company, probably around February 2013. But my license is what the game changer is. So basically, my license allows me to buy wine directly from producers in Europe and sell directly to consumers without having a physical store presence. I live in New York. I don't have a $3 million lying around to open a brand new wine store. Because you open a brand new wine store in New York City, and basically it's like you got to get PR, you have to turn on the lights, you have to hire all these people, and then you got to drop what? You know, 50K on inventory, and then you have to sit mm-hmm. around and, you know, pray people buy wine. And what is the biggest thing in retail is inventory. Everyone's always, how many times do you turn your inventory? Inventory this, inventory that. So me and my partner were thinking just, God, inventory sucks. Couldn't it be just a way that we could get around inventory or minimize it to the point where it's not completely draining all of our capital? And then this license came out. And this was a new license that didn't exist brand before. New license. Wow. It came out uh, New Year's Eve 2012, so into 2013. We became a company in February 2013. I think we sent out our first email in March. Um, but the thing is, I can sell to everybody, you know, in all 50 states and Canada. The Canadian people have to drive down usually to Washington State. And uh, it's kind of a nice thing. And, you know, my customers love it. My producers love it. We pay all the producers as soon as we get the invoice. Sometimes the invoice comes very quickly. Sometimes it becomes very slowly. Um, But the most important thing is before the wine has left the seller, they are all paid. Wow. And that sounds 
reasonable <laughs> until you realize that most of these producers are, are actually on terms with their with mm-hmm. their importers that can be anywhere from several months to years. Mm-hmm. And if you're a small like the, the kind of wineries that you're that you're working with, that actually that cash flow actually matters a lot to them. Yeah, it, cash flow is huge for these wineries. You know, I mean, there's definitely a crew of people that like you know I know as soon as I send them an order, I'm getting invoice in 24 hours. Then there's another crew I know when I'm sending getting invoice. I'm sending them an order. I'm getting invoice when the wine's about to be picked up and put on the boat. It's just, and that's usually kind of, I have some kind of old school guys as well. Um, but the general age of the person I represent is probably 32. Okay, you covered a lot of stuff. I want to back up and ask you. <laughs> I a, tend to, please a, do. A, a few questions here. I mean, uh, in. In my what I from what I can tell, you did for German wine at Crush and wine retailing, and also, you know, you weren't the certainly the only one, but for me, the loudest voice for for German wine. What Chamber Street did for is Loire Valley wine and in, in Beaujolais. Uh, do, do you agree? With, like, was that how did you get into German wine? And uh, no, that's a it's a good question, and I don't really think many people know how and why German dry wine is popular in the United States because I'm not going to sit there and write a blog post that I'm responsible, but I'm definitely partly responsible for German dry wines being in this country. Um, I've always loved German sweet wine. We can start off with that. I love German sweet wine. One of the first tastings I ever went to in New York City was the 01 Terry Thies tasting at Tribeca Grill to taste all the 01s. I mean, it was, I was blown away. I still have never tasted well fifteen, but we'll get to that. It was an incredible vintage, but all the wines were sweet. Vitmon is a great example. Vitmon was at this tasting. What is Vitmon known for today? Terrific grocery box, maybe in the top three or four in the Rheinhessen. And back then, the only thing that was being poured were Vitmon sweet wines. And I'm like, these are great. You know, I never heard of Vitmon before. I'll take these. I'll buy these. And I bought them. And then years later, I go visit Vitmon, and they're like, yes, we're ninety percent dry, ten percent sweet. I'm like, huh? Really? Why is that? And then I, they start tasting me on these dry wines, and I'm like, these are pretty spectacular dry wines, you know? And then obviously now things have changed. Uh, and let me, just, let me just circle back a little bit. So then I really like German sweet wine. I sold it and sold it and sold it. And uh, it was great. I was drinking it. I was buying it. I still have cases of 01 left in my cellar. And then it all changed when I went to Germany in 2006. I was working at Crush and Rudy Wiest took me to Germany, ironically, because I sold so many 05s. Because 05 was a big hyped vintage, and I sold oceans of 05s. It was unbelievable. So I won, or whatever, a trip, not, not really won, you know, to Germany, you know, because I sold a bunch of sweet wine. And what happens on that trip? I discover the dry wines, really discover the dry wines. I'll never forget having lunch at Schaefer Froelich. And, you know, and Schaefer Froelich was one of the estates that I've sold the most of. And Tim Pours, uh, Belsen Neck Trocken. And I'm like, it was just for simple, for a simple lunch, peasant kind of lunch, you know, like a soup with like some sort of sausage in it. And I'm like, this is amazing. And I'm like, Rudy, Rudy Weiss was the guy who took me on the trip. I'm like, how come this doesn't come in? He was like, oh, you like that? Well, get ready. And that's the way he would speak. And then... Later, we tasted after lunch with Tim, and we tasted, and I tasted his Grosskrevach wines for the first time. And I'm like, these wines don't come into the country? I'm like, this is like Grand Cru Chablis. These wines are amazing. And, you know, my only reference of German dry wines was, I would say, P. 
people not saying nice things about them, saying they're shrill, they have no fruit, yeah, they're high in acid, you know, it's just like really hard to drink them and they're not good, they don't get fully ripe, all this stuff. All right, and that's what I just assumed. And then so I go all across Germany, I taste, you know, Silvaner Grossgravach, Riesling Grossgravach from Hans Wiersching, Tim Froelich. Um, I was tasting dry wines mm-hmm. from Gunderlach, Pfeffingen, you name it. So I come back. And I'm like, I'm not really interested in buying any sweet wine. I'd like to bring in all of these dry wines. So I had to propose something to my boss at Crush. And I said, I want to buy a mixed palette of Grossgravach wines from Germany. They're like, how much? I'm like, 56 cases mixed of all these wines. But believe me, I'll sell them. These are in Reb Holes. I forgot about that. I'm like, these are the greatest dry wine values in the world. Nobody knows about them. I need to get behind this. So then I had a dinner with the distributor about the markup because... I thought the markup should be lower because I'm trying to create a new category. I lost that battle, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and then we brought them in, and we started selling them. And Crush, I would have to say, was definitely the first store that had a comprehensive selection of gross box. They were all special order. There was no gross box that were actually within the system that you could order or anything. They weren't even being pre-sold at the Terry and Rudy tastings. They weren't. I can't think of anybody what else. What a change in a decade. Was there a gap between your enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of your customers? Oh, there was a gap between... There's always a gap between my enthusiasm <laughs> and my enthusiasm of my customers. The enthusiasm gap, I guess you could call it. Um, because it's really tough to sell a bunch of wines, and they weren't cheap. You know, average price was... At that time, fifty to sixty dollars, and uh, why should I pay fifty or sixty dollars when I can get a sweet spate laser for thirty-five? That was the number one question. And I go, this is a different thing. Do you say why pay thirty dollars for Pernod Berger when I can, you know, get get something else for fifteen or whatever? Of course you don't. They're different things, and different things can mean different things to different people, obviously. Um, so I really was trying to explain to them why they're so good. They have rich fruit, incredible balance, great complexity. They can age, not as long as the sweet Rieslings. And uh, they're only getting better. And that is the one thing that I kept trying to say. They're only getting better. Just trust me on this. They're only getting better. Believe me. The amount of times that I have to say trust me to my customers is uh, a lot. But that's not be- it's, it's not because... The customers don't trust me. It's because I'm trying to sell them wines they've never heard of before that are risky. And then, obviously, we know German Riesling, what happens to German dry Riesling now. I mean, German dry Riesling is the dominant Riesling in the United States, wouldn't you say? I would say so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is amazing. I mean, the superstar German producer today is Klaus-Peter Keller. Like, and he yep. is, you know, he is putting, you know, Germany on his back, but you've got so many other great producers. So one of the reasons that I, when I opened my company, I wanted to sell only German dry wine. And that was easy because I had, you know. That was the idea. You're going to sell yeah. only German dry wine. Yeah. Great idea, right? Um, and so <laughs> <laughs> that was the idea, just German dry wine, because I had a list of many, many producers uh, that I know would work with me. Um, and... It just didn't work out that way. I just wound up selling 30 to 40%. Actually, I probably sell 20% German dry wine and 20% German red, which wasn't even in the plan, but we'll get to that later. Um, and uh, now, with 
the thing about German dry wine, especially that people need to realize, is that you probably couldn't really make that great German dry wine in the 80s just because of the climate. And a lot of the vineyards that are excelling in dry wine now were probably weren't that excelling in dry wine in the 80s or even ghastly the 70s. Um, and that is a really great, great thing. There's still a lot of work to be done because there are some bad dry wines out there. But in general... Um, they have, I mean, I call, I compare them to Grand Crucibly. There's a person you know, I'm sure, that I know, and I'll recount this story, Ned Benedict. So I do know Ned Benedict. Yes, we love Ned Benedict. He's one, I, I, really, I really respect him, and I really like him, despite the fact that he makes fun of me 24-7, 365, but I love you, Ned. But I love I, you, Ned, too, <laughs> and I love Grand Cru. Yes, right. so do I. Yeah. I was at a tasting, uh, a Wildman tasting, tasting some Nicholas Potel. And Ned comes up to me. He's like, so what's interesting? What's going on? And I'm like, grocery box. It's the new Chablis. you got to trust me. And he's like, you're crazy. And he started making fun of me, of course. And now, grocery box, pretty much, I mean, it's a tough time to make decisions. Should I buy a $50 bottle of grocery box or a $50 bottle of Chablis? It's really tough because they both offer interesting, exceptional you know, things that you want. Mineral-driven wines that have amazing fruit that can age although chablis will definitely age for longer and chablis just, will age for longer oh chablis will age for longer than german dry wines here's the other thing we to still me that's a, that's actually surprising oh we don't know how they will age this is the one thing about mm-hmm. grosker because it's such a young category the first ones in general were con- considered in 2001 and well you have erstalaga in the rheingau which is I'm gonna, I don't want to get too geeky about this. It's just the name of Grosker Box and the Rheingau. But sometimes they can age five years. Sometimes they can age 10. Some will age 20. It's all about the producer. For me, the two longest agers are Reb Holes and Tim Froelich. Um, Keller, I think, eventually will, but he's only been making really good German dry wine for since 2002 or 2004. So there's still we still don't know yet, but Chablis, you know. I mean, you know, 89 Rabinos are probably still not even ready to go. So that's uh, that's one thing we're still was, learning, so, uh, and I'm still learning about you know aged Chablis as well. But I I found that in my experience, it's really only the top top producers of Chablis who can make very age worthy wines. You have probably had a lot more experience with maybe the second tier and, and those aging well, but I, I have not. But I found, and my assumption was that because of the the nature of Riesling. Uh, even if you aren't at the if you aren't at the very very top level, you can still make an age worthy age worthy complex wine because um, it happened with sweet wines. So maybe it doesn't it doesn't happen with dry wines as it, much. It really depends. Dry wines are such a it's such a different animal. This is why they're still. This is why it was complicated for so long. For example, I have a producer in the Mosul, Martin Mullen, and his wines I call and I market them as eternal. Because he has the most insanely reductive way of making wine ever. And I go to his estate and we taste like a 98 Alsace Atrocan. And he looks on the bottle and he's like, oh, yes, that's been open for six weeks. And I'm like, six weeks? This is a 98 Alsace Atrocan. And it still needs like a couple weeks. And he's like, yes, yes, yes. So there are kind of exceptions. And I'm sure you know Becker that, you know, my friend Stephen imports from Von Bowden. Mm-hmm. That's another type of interesting kind of situation there with dry wines that are going to age exceptionally. But then, 
you know, I've had, I'm not going to name names, but I've had stuff that's passage prime from 06, 02, 04, not from the top tier, but definitely from the second tier and third tier. So it's tough. And also, what is the top tier in Germany? That's still being developed because there's new people that are, are coming and there's kind of, you know, new things and it, it's always changing. I mean, I go every year in taste and, you know, I am always, always amazed. Like, and the one thing I love is being proved wrong by a wine that I don't normally like. And a great example is, do you know Von Winning? Yes. Yes. So I never used to like Von yes. Winning. First time but I they, they've gotten some notoriety. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Recently. Really? Recently, have. yeah. 2011 vintage I tasted at a huge tasting in Germany, and every wine was like armpit and oak. And I'm just like, I don't understand. And this is when the notoriety in Germany was starting, but it hadn't started in America. Then I went to a tasting recently called Riesling and Limestone, put on by one of my customers who wrote a book about that. And I tasted a Von Winning wine. You don't understand. I wanted to hate this wine. I did. Because, like, it's been a big joke between me and my friends. We call it Von Losing and all these different things, <laughs> you know. And then I taste the wine, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And I totally just shut my trap. And, and that is one of the greatest things I love in wine, is I love being proven wrong of a wine I don't like because there are no great wines. And this is something that people are going to think is controversial, but there are only great bottles of wine. And that is something that, like, I really try to explain and I try to write because we're drinking and tasting a bottle of champagne right now. And there could be another bottle of champagne from the same producer, the same everything, and it could not show as well. And if one doesn't know anything about wine, people will be like, I don't like that wine. I don't like that champagne. Because it's the same thing as if you go into a fruit store and you get two apples. And one apple, you know, has a little kind of like too much brown on it. And then the other apple is perfectly crisp and juicy and wonderful. Are you going to stop eating apples? Of course you're not going to stop eating apples. But that happens so much. My retort to that would be, though, if you go, if you get your apples from a farm where they are generally uh, kind of conscientious, you like the way they do things, they're careful, they're good farmers, the chances of you getting a an apple that you like are much har- much higher than if they're, you know, Imported from South America, kept under dry ice, and you know, and, and are three months old. No, that's I, I definitely, definitely agree. And so, so there are, I think, wineries and wines yes. that that you're much more likely, and that's really what your business is based on. You're saying, oh yeah, I mean, my business is the ultimate trust me business. I mean, that's pretty much what I call it because we pre-sell every wine. So I send out four or five emails a week. Um, we, you know, and each day has kind of a different category. Um, Tuesday and Thursday are our core wines, we like to call them. Wednesday used to be called Lyle Wine Wednesday. It was a wine that I love that's crazy and freaky and weird that I don't think anyone will buy. But I just want to sell it because I think it's awesome. I remember the first one was Honorly and Mole, Muller, Turgau, Muschel, Kalk. We're like, yeah, no one's going to buy, like, single vineyard Muller-Turgau. Um, and it was, like, a crazy oversold offer. It was allocated. It's, like, $19 wine. And it was allocated, and it was a huge, huge situation. Um, and then we realized Wednesday has some power. So then we sold out, and now we do real offers on Wednesdays. Um, and then Friday is expensive wine. Uh, 50 and up usually is what Friday is. And then Saturday is called Small Allocation Saturday. It's basically people aren't paying attention, but we've discovered the reverse because no one's working, so everyone's paying attention. Um, so 
when I have really small allocations, I like to send them out on Saturdays or like Monday nights or like Christmas morning yeah, or holidays. <laughs> I've gotten some cool wine where like, oh my god, I can actually buy this and then yep. it's on a holiday. Remember, yeah, the Julian Sunier Natour Renier. That was July fourth last year. God, you have a good memory. Oh, right, yeah. We need to take a quick break. We've already gone. We've already gone over a little bit. So we're gonna take oh. a very quick break, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm going to think about and savor your your thought about the only great bottles of wine and no great wines while we're taking our quick break. Domain offers discreet and secure storage, transportation, trading, and advisory services to passionate fine wine collectors worldwide. Since 2003, they've focused on making collecting easier and more enjoyable. With over 1.5 million bottles in storage across five facilities, Domain is the largest network of wine storage warehouses in the country. Warehouses are located in Chicago, St. Louis, Metro New York, Napa, and Washington, D.C., with refrigerated shipment hubs in dozens of cities. Their service also extends to the home collector. In the last decade, the team has organized and inventoried more than 1.7 million bottles in home sellers across the globe. Recently, Domain has launched a marketplace where clients can buy and sell wine. Trading in the network ensures that wines are stored at Domain facilities and commissions are the lowest in the industry. Go to DomainStorage.com to complete an online questionnaire and someone will get back to you within one business day. All right, we are back on In the Drink. I'm here with Lyle Fass of Fast Selections. We are sipping on some actually absolutely delicious champagne. Uh, Lyle, you did describe this as a deluxe cuvee? Well, I like to call it a deluxe cuvee just in a way because... It's one of these champagnes. It's Caez Le Maire, mm-hmm. uh, Cuvée Jadis, 2006. Um, and they are in – I always mix these up. I know every wine porter, importer needs to know every percentage of every grape and every village and everything. They're in either Domery, which I'm pretty 100% sure, because it, or Chamery, because i got a grower in Chamery as well. And you can understand how Domery and Chamery. But basically, they're right next to Cumier. Um, where the famous George Laval is, and he makes his, you know, natural oak-aged champagnes. This is 100% oak-aged. Vilmart is another one also. So that's why I call it kind of deluxe. Krug as well, oak-aged. And I call this kind of my baby Vilmart or my baby Laval or my baby Krug uh, because it has this incredible richness to it. But just because the fact that it's champagne, you can't have, you don't, I don't think I've ever had a champagne that's been flabby. I mean, I really don't think I have. It's just impossible because of all the bubbles in there and the carbonation. We did try on the show once uh, Moet Ice, uh, which is a champagne that is made mostly to be poured over ice. And I would say without the ice, that was a flabby champagne, but that might have been the only one I've ever had. I think that is an unbelievable product. And whoever came up with that in the boardroom, that's, I mean... That's unbelievable because pouring. There's, there's some respect to yeah, the respect to that. the ridiculousness of I've it. I've got to respect that because seriously, the number one thing that like wine amateurs say is, "Oh, the temperature's not right. Can I pour an ice cube on it?" And like they have a wine that you can actually pour, enjoy with ice and not be completely ridiculed. Yes. That's wonderful. Um, 
anyway, to uh, but to sidetrack, these people like they were they're you know they're very far away from REM, like forty five minutes. I can never pronounce REM. And my first meeting with them, I'm in there, and their Italian importers are in there, and they're so funny. The Italian importers, they see me, and they're just like. These are good champagnes. You have to work with them. Trust me, they are very, very good. Very, very, very good. You know, very emphatic. And I'm like, okay, this is a good sign. And uh, I tasted it, and I was just absolutely in love. And the way I tasted it is the way I prefer to taste at all my champagne houses. Unfortunately, some don't, some do. Is I like to taste the still wine before I taste the sparkling wine, the Von Claire. Uh, so I asked him if I could do that. I get rejected 60% of the time when I ask that. Because the Von Claire wines are very highly high in acid, um, and most people don't enjoy them. But for me, if I'm tasting a Von Claire and it's going to be good, I, then then my job's easier because I know the bubbles uh, when I taste the final carbonated version blend, whatever, it's going to be amazing, and I also can get a better grasp of what it is. Uh, so I remember tasting the Von Claire's here, and I'm like, this is it. These people are fantastic, and that is that. It's a husband and wife. She's Belgium, um, Belgian, and he's French. And, uh, I mean, it's I, I find their life fascinating because, I mean, they've come to New York, mm-hmm. and they visited me, and they're really, really good friends. And this is one other thing that is important is I'm in this 50% for the wine and 50% for the people. Yeah, and talk about that a little bit. I mean, you have a combination of... Uh, producers I have I've never heard of, and you've introduced me to, and uh, I've taken uh, you know the risk, and it, it's always paid off. And then wines from producers I know and love, but are not available currently in the in the state. So how do you choose? Uh, how do you choose the the wines and the wineries that you're going to work with? Okay, that is a terrific question. So just to quickly say, you know. Um, as everyone knows, there is a three-tier system for selling alcohol in the United States. The producer sells to an importer, sells to a distributor, and distributor sells to a restaurant or a retailer. Everyone gets a markup along the way. There are certain and everyone's taxed along the way. Yeah. They have to make money, yeah. and they're taxed, and the government makes money each way. So there's like there's layer, a little, layers and layers of many layers. And unfortunately, yeah. because of the market, wines get lost in this. And I have a term for these wines. I call them ceiling wines. So let's talk about a region that I know is near and dear to your heart, Beaujolais. And in Beaujolais, basically the ceiling for paying for Beaujolais, 50 bucks is pushing it. But that's probably the retail ceiling for Beaujolais. You never see a $100 Beaujolais anywhere. You never see a $70 mm-hmm. Beaujolais. You don't. Um, it's rare to see a 50 I mean, it's like the... It's Cuvier very rare. P, like the 3.14 from Foyard. Exactly. That, is, that is pretty much it. Exactly. But there are a lot of wineries that are brought in by importers, and their top wines are not brought in. And the reason is is because they will crash through the ceiling, and they don't want to be stuck with a ton of inventory as a result. There are tons of wines that I sell Beaujolais top, top cuvées that are, you know, $38, dollars maybe 40 maybe 37 36 That would be smashed through 50 through the three-tier system, no question. So all I'm doing is, because one of the things also is I know what I want. I read about wine. I'm obsessed with wine. I'm reading European wine blogs. I'm reading, you know, La Pache en Duvant, the European wine board. I shouldn't really give away my secret there, but that is the best <laughs> wine board on the planet Earth. 
Just use Google Translate, go to La Passion de Vin, and you will learn more than you could learn anywhere else on the internet. Um, so I do some research there, and I know what I want. That's another thing. There's many, there's many wine buyers out there that kind of things come to them and they discover them, but I know what I want because I research just like a stock trader or whatever. So, so then you go to the producers and visit them sometimes basically you contact them via email and say, I know I want this wine. Let's just, uh, let's just look at this logically. Let's just look at a producer. Um, I'm going to say, let's say there's producer X and he's everywhere in the United States and everyone loves producer X. And, uh, but producer X makes 10 wines and only four producer X wines come into the United States. Um, because that's the way the importer wants it. And it works well for producer X because he's getting paid and everyone's happy. And, you know, the local French market is gobbling up, you know, the high-end cuvées because they love them. And they're also, you know, maybe maximum 15, 16, 17 euros at the estate. So what I have done is I have – because I can't go to established producer that has been imported to the United States for 35 years and say, sell to me. That ain't going to work. So I have to find – so I found someone who has relationships with these producers, and I say, so it is technically one layer. And that is who I am getting this all from, hmm. different people. And I say, can you get me this? I want it. And they can. Because I, if I went to actual producer who's world famous, who's been an importer for 30 years, I mean, I wouldn't get a response. Of course I wouldn't get a response. You know, and sometimes I get in trouble as well. Um, yeah, how do the distributors kind of feel? I mean, you've been in this industry for so long. I know you're, you're personal friends with a lot of these people. Like, how do they feel with, about, you know, they have this uh, you know, group of wines from, a, from a, one of their top wineries. Everyone's excited about them. And then you, you bring in this, like, cuvee that, that no one in the States even knew existed. Yeah, they have mixed reactions, let's say. Um, sometimes I'll get articles written about me with clever nicknames like Selector L about how awful I am. Or um, a producer or someone will call me up. How can we work together? I really love producer X. Um, maybe you could bring in these three and I could bring in these two. I've got that going in mm -hmm. one situation. Um, I've got other situations uh, where I get phone calls and people yell at me and I just smile. Um, but I try to communicate to everyone that all I care about is producer X selling more wine. That is the only thing I care about. These people that I work with overwhelming me are farmers. Um, and they're not marketers. They don't know how to market. I mean, that is definitely one of the good things about having, you know, certain tiers out there. Um, and it's very, very important, I think to get the top cuvées in the United States. Chateau Tivon. I'll just say a name because they really are dear and near to my heart. And Chateau Tivon is probably the most famous producer of Cote de that windmill anybody can spot from a million miles away mm -hmm. on that label. And the only wine that, was, that has ever been brought into America from Chateau Tivon has been something called like Cinque Sapage, which is just a blend. That's all. But... If you visit Chateau Tivon, or if you know anything about Chateau Tivon, or even if you read John Gilman, who's reviewed the wines for a long time, you know they make four single vineyards and then a high-end cuvee that is a blend of their oldest vines from their top two single vineyards. So that's five wines from Chateau Tivon that have never been brought into the country 
until I started my company. Chateau d'Yvonne is probably one of the most famous wines in Beaujolais that is exported. And, and they've I, gotten that level of, of fame and notoriety just oh, based yeah. on the one wine. Which, which I love. I love that one. I don't. Uh, <laughs> uh, the only reason I don't love it is because I've tasted... Like, you've tasted it a million times. Yeah. You've tasted all their other wines, which you like even wine. better. Yeah, yeah, like I totally love them. You know, you've got Cuvée La Chapelle, which is like 85-year-old vines, you know, that's really steep on the mountain. Then you've got Cuvée Godefroy, which is even the oldest vines that they can't even remember, mm-hmm. which actually doesn't age as long as the Chapelle. Then you've got Clos Bertrand. Um, then you've got the blend of the oldest vines of Chapelle and Zach. I mean, Chapelle and... Uh, Go to Fra called Cuvée Zachary. And these are some of the most unbelievable Beaujolais being made today. They crush the one that's always been in, in, in here. But the importer, who I'm not sure who it is, um, and uh, he basically, for some reason, only brings in one Cuvée. I don't know why. But it's probably not going to change. And this is a market inefficiency. Right. You know, but... Do you think anybody in the United States would be comfortable paying in a retail store 55 bucks for a bottle of Chateau Tibon when they're used to paying 23 No. Yeah. So I do understand his point, but wouldn't the producer be pissed off? Yeah. No, I mean, and it's exciting to be able to experience these at a great... And, you know, I feel like I'm very price sensitive because I know what everything yeah. costs. Oh, yeah. And so to see, like, wait a second, this is a wine that I've never... I didn't even know the producer made. It's super special, not even brought in, and the cost is like really in line. Like, what you know, like I feel good about buying it at exactly. that price. And what's amazing to me is how you feel excited, just as excited about the nineteen dollars bottles of wines as your thirty-eight, yes. as your expensive ones, and the the, the way that you can uh, get that across in your emails. Um, you said these guys aren't good marketers, but you, I think you're an outstanding marketer. Thank how you. did that? Like, have you're, you've really, I feel like you really found your voice when it comes to, to writing something you're naturally good at. Is that, is that a part of the process that you enjoy and how have you, how have you honed that over the years? Well, it's my escape actually. When I write the offers, it's definitely my escape, you know, cause I'm doing a lot of different things all the time. And so I kind of like hone in, uh, I write all the offers. Here's a nice little, did you know, I write them all on my iPhone. Come on. I swear to you. It seems so inefficient. What well, it is. Because I can't, I've never learned, I'm a hunt and peck typer, first of all, uh, so I've never really learned how to type. I know it's crazy for someone who writes as much as I do, um, but I really, I write them on the iPhone, I lie on my couch, uh, or sometimes I go to my roof, which is 55 stories up, and look over New York City, and I ask myself one question. There's only one question I have to ask myself. Why should anybody buy this wine? That is the only question I ask, and then it all flows from that. It's, you think it's really complex, right? But it's really simple, you know, because, yes, I am also price sensitive because I know how much everything costs, but also because I'm cheap, all right? <laughs> At the end of the day, I am cheap. The biggest fight I ever had with my business partner was over a three-euro Trocken bottle of German Riesling. He wanted to sell it, and I didn't, and... No one would have known the differences in taste between me and him we're fighting about, but that's just that's kind of what fast selection is about right there. And this is also something that is important about the writing is I 
have been yelled at by a couple people about this is that I don't like over geekifying my emails. All right. I don't like talking about the nine different subsoil types. I don't like talking about this. If it is relevant, I will definitely put a sentence there or two. And there's just certain things I don't want to promote. The only thing I want to promote is how good the wine is and why someone should buy it. So I'm not really into promoting natural, biodynamic, organic. I'll mention it, but it's not like, you know, the uh, the orthodoxies that I push in my I, I think you really accomplished that well, and uh, I, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to see what you have coming up next. Let's just finish up, and can you just tell people how they can sign up for the list, and then we've got, we've got to wrap things up, unfortunately. No problem. Wow, we definitely need to do a part two. Um, definitely. Here, anytime you want to come back. Uh, basically, you can go to my website, which is www.fastselections.com. Please excuse the look. But there's pretty much only three things you can do on the website. On the upper left-hand corner, it says, please sign up for our mailing list. You put a go in that white box and you sign up. Or you could also find me on social media. I'm pretty much everywhere. Grapey Lyle on Twitter and Instagram. And friend me on Facebook. There's Fast Selections Facebook page and Lyle Fast. So I'm pretty much one of the easiest people to find out. Uh, You can go to the website. You can contact me through any number of things and sign up. And uh, and I highly, highly recommend you do it. Lyle, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Joey. I, I can't wait to break into all of the Fast Selection wines I have at home. And uh, thanks to all of you guys for listening. Thanks to uh, David Tadashore and Aaron Fairbanks from Heritage. The whole crew is amazing here. And don't forget to uh, help keep HRN alive by becoming a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 